Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of Daniel, which would be page 624 in our church Bibles. And we're going to read to the end of verse 13. And if you're new and you're wondering why Daniel, we have begun two weeks ago um, working verse by verse, as is our pattern here, through this book of the Bible. So we choose a book and then work through it verse by verse. And so here we are, all spared and Lord willing, in chapter 2 of this good book that God has given us from his word. We're going to read and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. By the way, beginning here into chapter 7, The original language is no longer Hebrew. It will be Aramaic. We'll speak to that at the end. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. If you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. You do not tell me the dream. There's just one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is not a man on earth who could do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word this morning. May he grant to us understanding of it. Let's, let's pray. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? His own will, this much I know. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Father, will you please help us now as we open your word? We have a very keen interest in seeing you as you are revealed here, the God of our salvation. And then, God, look on us in mercy. Give us power and capacity and wisdom that we don't have in order that much will be made and known about you to the praise of your glorious grace. Win us all for yourself this morning, we would ask. For Jesus' sake, amen. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the wealthiest, most powerful, most worthy being in the whole of the universe laid aside his personal privileges, laid aside his status, laid aside his personal rights in order to serve and to save those who least 
deserve it. So instead of a throne, Jesus chose a cross. Instead of preservation, he chose crucifixion. He chose whips and lashes and nakedness and humiliations and order. In order that guilty, vile sinners like me can repent, be saved, converted, become spotless in the redeeming blood of Christ. That's the gospel. And the wonder of the gospel is that this God who is completely sufficient and utterly perfect in who he is, humbled himself in Christ Jesus so that we could be reconciled to him. In short, Jesus was and he is So, very, very good to those who are so very, very bad. And Jesus and the Father are one. When you see Jesus in action in the New Testament, Jesus said, you see the Father in action. Therefore, Jesus and the God of the Old Testament are one. Now, I begin this way because here in this chapter and all the way until chapter 4, what we're going to see is that God has a very keen interest in King Nebuchadnezzar and God wants to save Nebuchadnezzar. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to repent and declare publicly the magnificence and the truth about God. In other words, just as big as the message as it is in Daniel that God is sovereign over all the affairs of the world is that God is equally committed to save People in this world, even the likes of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so here in chapter 2, and then in 3, and again in 4, we have God's plan, the salvation plan being weaved in and out the text. And God keeps coming after Nebuchadnezzar. He keeps putting him in hard places. Here in chapter 2, in the frustration of his dreams. In chapter 3, that useless uh, fiery furnace. It used to always work, but it's not working now, and, and so on. He's doing that, God is, in order that Nebuchadnezzar will repent. Because God wants to rescue this king. And again, God is going to keep after him. He's going to frustrate him. He's going to block his plans. He's going to reduce him in chapter 4 to live like an animal. So that the best thing can happen to Nebuchadnezzar, he'll repent. John Calvin says it like this. When God wishes to bring a person to repentance, he is often compelled to repeat his blows continually. And as you think about this, what a remarkable thought that why would God even bother with the likes of Nebuchadnezzar? Such an arrogant man, such an evil man, an evil man turned in upon himself. However, what a gracious God. What a merciful God that he is, he is worthy of all praise that he would decide to send these divine blows upon this man in order to lead him to repentance. But as you think about it, at least as I think about it, what makes Nebuchadnezzar different than, than Joe Franzone? Except for the grace of God, which amazes me. Paul says it like this in Titus chapter 3. It's not very flattering. He says, at one time, Christians, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We, we hated and we hated one another. It's not flattering. Still true sometimes. But, Paul continues, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the good things that we have done, but because of his mercy. 
God's not going to rescue Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar is going to get on the straight and narrow. That's not how God saves. So you see, as we read Daniel, because of what some of us may be used to, immediately we want to place all of our attention on Daniel and then we put it on ourselves and we forget the opening chapter and how grace and graces were given to Daniel so that Daniel could be Daniel. And if we forget that, we look at Daniel and say, oh, I want to be like Daniel. And we try to cut bits and pieces of Daniel and we paste them on ourselves. And all we do then is turn this book into a simple moral lesson. And then it becomes dead. And so we make it a manual for some tips for better living and personal glory. You want wisdom like Daniel? You want to increase your standing like Daniel? You want to guarantee that promotion at work like Daniel? Well, then here you go. And so you take that in the home, you take that in the workplace, you take it in the church, and you have people showing off their spiritual muscles. I went through the Daniel program. Look at these muscles. Look at the spirit. Look at that. Look at that. Now, we couldn't do much better than modeling Daniel. But don't miss the forest for the trees. The original readers of this book, their minds wouldn't be going down this line. They, they would not be preoccupied by this at all. And here's the reason why. It was their self-preoccupation that got them into this mess to begin with. Because one of the reasons why God's people were in exile is that they refused to be a light to the nations. They refused to be a light to the world. They refused to declare God to their neighbors. They didn't do their duty and look after the interest of God who wants to save the world. No, they did not do that. They were just interested in their own lives. And they had their own little personal kingdoms. And they had their own little personal interests. And they wanted God to feed that beast best of all. Yes, they still went through their religious routines. But God said it was like a stench to him. So they didn't declare the greatness of God to the Gentile neighbors. They, they were not being a light to the nations. They were not concerned for them. So in their self-preoccupation and their personal ambitions, they became, spiritually speaking, they became heavy and slow and lethargic in the things of God. The complete opposite of Daniel. Because one of the things, Lord willing, we're going to learn next time is that Daniel here is a man of action. And as you read through the end of the book, Daniel is all about action, even into his 80s and 90s. Nevertheless, in, in this kind of lethargy and dullness, that will always be the case in every generation when you, when you have God's people turn in upon themselves. And so what happens is God becomes smaller and he becomes less able. And, and then God begins to appear more and more like us. And he begins to think like us. He will indulge us, but he'll never ask anything from us. And then when it actually becomes clear what God actually wants us to do, it seems then impossible. Therefore, as God says in Isaiah 63, 5, because he says to his people, okay, you're not going to declare me to the world Isaiah 63, 5, then I will work out my salvation with my own arm. I'll do it myself. Loved ones, remember that the first readers of this book, they are a minority group in a foreign land. Does that sound familiar? All the good old days that they thought were good, but they were not, they're gone. And they're not coming back. So what should they do? What should they do? New York Times article, this Thursday I read it at lunchtime. This is the title of the article. Split over Donald Trump 
and cut off by cultural wars, evangelicals despair. Here's a quote. It's all flipped so fast, said Mr. On Guard, a 70-year-old man who favors khakis and boat shoes. Suddenly, he says, we were in the minority. That was kind of scary feeling. It makes you wonder where the Christians went. Now, regardless of the truth of the article, in essence, what he's saying is, what should we do? What should we do? Daniel chapter 2 is going to help us here. One of the things we should do is stand back and see the salvation of God. And look how God cares about all people, the unbelievers who, who are now the majority. And you, a minority group, just like Daniel, don't hate these people. Don't hate Nebuchadnezzar. God wants to save him. God wants to reveal his glory to him. So what should we do? Well, maybe we should repent and do what we were always told to do. Do your duty. Stay on the line in the place of your exile and be a light. Be a light to the Gentiles. Now, by all by all means, as we can think about it, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful and successful man. He was the leader of the most marvelous kingdom on the face of the earth at that time. He was essentially king of the known world. Secular history tells us that at this point in his reign, and you can see that in verse 1, he had a whole number of decisive victories over his enemies. He, in essence, was undefeated. His prospects were large. His achievements already remarkable. And yet, as we look at the Bible, we find that he cannot sleep. Now, that's amazing, isn't it? You, you have the ruler of the world who's dominating the world, and he can't sleep. Pretty common problem. 50 to 70 million Americans, they tell me on the internet, have some problems with sleep or sleep disorder. Pretty common problem for such a remarkable man. Shakespeare, Henry IV, um, part two, scene three, I think. <laughs> Uneasy lies the head who wears the crown. Spurgeon, we know this one, the best of men, men at best. He can't sleep, verse 1, because of a dream. And what seems to be happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar is probably having some kind of recurring nightmare. Again, verse 1 tells us his mind was troubled by this, troubled as in vexed. Literally, these dreams struck him. That's the, that's the Hebrew there. Struck him. They were puzzling to him. In other words, it made no sense. Okay, here I am, the king of the world, and I'm kicking tail, and I can't sleep because of these dreams. He had everything a person could dream of. He had power, fame, influence. He was dominating. He was exceptionally good. He would be the kind of person that would make the cover of every monthly magazine, every month probably. He was in the process of creating an empire which will, which will be known as long as this earth endures. His city gardens would be known as one of the wonders of the world, but he can't sleep because of the dreams. Okay, so what's going on? Well, we're going to have to wait till verse 31 for the dream to be told and explained. But now, let's, let me give you a brief summary of his dream. So there was a huge statue of a man which was placed in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. It had a head of gold, 
chest and arms of silver. Its middle and thighs were made of bronze. It had legs of iron and its feet, a combination of clay and iron. And the, in the dream, this, this statue is smashed by a stone. And the statue becomes just dust in the wind. No trace of it at all. However, the stone gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Verse 35, a huge mountain which fills the entire earth. That's the dream which is essentially Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare. Can't sleep. So he, he who was really, really good during the daytime, nighttime has him licked. Undefeated king, defeated by his dreams. If you have never listened to the soundtrack of The Phantom of the Opera, you should, I would suggest. One of the songs is Music of the Night. The opening verses says this. Night, time sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness stirs and wakes imagination. Silently the senses abandon their defenses. And this is what's happening to this king. He is stirred. And so he does then, verse 2, what all kings would do at that time. He gets people in the know. Verse 2, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. He has a request, verse 3, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. And here we go, right? The council's response, pretty reasonable. Verse 4, you, you king, live forever. Tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. Of course, that does not settle well with the king. True to form, he threatens them because that always works. So he says, if you can't tell me the dream and interpret the dream... I'm going to have you cream. That's verse 5, right? I'll have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubber. Uh, rubble, excuse me. <laughs> Which is worse, rubber or rubble? I don't know, but it's going to be bad. <laughs> and so what he's saying then is that I'll kill you and I'll kill your people too. Okay, that's the stick. Here's the carrot, verse 6. If you tell me the dream and explain it, then boy, oh boy, it's going to come to you in spades, right? Gifts and rewards and great honors are all yours. Remember the movie Rain Man and that scene? You've got fabulous prizes waiting to be won if you tell me the dream, right? But again, verse 7, O king, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. To which the king replies, verse 8, Okay, I see your little game. You're trying to stall for time. You don't know what to say. Verse 9, no more, no more carrot. It's all stick. Tell me, says the king, explain it to me or else. Because I know you're against me. You're going to mislead me. That should tell you something about the frustration, but also his trust of his counselors. It's not very good. To which they reply, verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, and so on. Verse 11, it's too hard. Only the gods can do what you ask. And they are not talking. As you would suspect, the king goes ballistic. He issues a decree, verse 12, everybody dead. All the wise men of Babylon will be put to death. Now, as you think about that, that reminds me of another king who will come later on in the New Testament, King Herod, right? He was not helped by the wise men at all either. He feels threatened by one who was born, apparently king of the Jews. So Herod, what does he do? He can't handle this threat. He can't get what he needs. So he wants to just kill people. He calls for the slaughter of the innocents, Right? Heads are going to roll. People are going to hurt if I don't get what I need. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That's Herod. And of course, 
That's man as man. On whatever level that is, you, you'd give me what I need. And if I don't get what I need, here comes the threats. Here comes the threats. That's the story. So what I want to do is, there's a few things that are going on that we need to kind of have a good grasp of. If you have a worship folder, you'll see the back. I use those very creative titles. The first thing, the second thing, the third thing. Sorry about that. <laughs> the first thing, okay, these, these counselors, who are they? Okay, there's the magicians. The magicians would be a mix of, of people who are fortune tellers and scholars. So in one sense, it could be academic. In the other sense, it's, it could be occultic. Here, I believe it's probably both because in chapter one, we find that this empire has a great interest in education, but they also have a great interest in the dark powers of the evil one and the evil kingdom. That's the magicians. The enchanters, these are what would be necromancers. These are people who would talk to the dead to get information. Then the uh, sorcerers or astrologers would probably be more accurate, even though the NIV doesn't say that. And these are the people who look to the stars to determine one's future, right? So this would be the kind of person who writes uh, horoscopes in the newspapers or has a blog. And they look to the heavens and they try to tell people their future. Finally then, the Chaldeans, if you see the text note in the NIV, these were the wisest of the wise because they typically did all the talking with the king, as you'll see in the text there. And so what happens is Nebuchadnezzar has them all together. He has academic help. He has scholarship. He has demonic power. He has occult practices. He has stargazers trying to find out the truth about his dream. Now, catch this. Everything in this world, everything this world could offer, every created thing is being called on to help him, including the kingdom of evil, which at first was a created kingdom. And they are powerless to help him. Okay, hold that. So convinced were this culture about dreams that they had some kind of future-telling communication. The scholars tell us that the Babylonian culture had what was called dream books or a dream reading system. And what they did was when a person of, of worth had a dream and it was a recurring dream, they believed that there was truth coming out of the dream. Some kind of observable law which could be traced, recorded, established in its truth. So if you gave them enough data in their collection of these books, they could tell you your dream. Which is why they keep asking the king, tell us the dream and then we can help you. Tell us a dream and we can help you. Okay? So they kept records of people's dreams. They would chart the person's life after their dream. And they would watch how their life unfolded. Now think about that. You have a dream, you record the dream, and then you send people to study the life of this person and how it unfolds. So as they watch the person's life, they begin to record the data. They would be able, they thought, to come to conclusions. So they would take those conclusions, put them in a book, and then when someone else would come to them and they would say, I have this dream, they would open up their book and they said, okay, a cow means this. And the sea means that. And, you know, blueberries mean this. 
And so because of this, this is what's going to happen to you. Now that's amazing that they would spend that much time and that much resources for that kind of thing. And aren't we glad that that does not happen today? Here's a fun trick. Google, tell me my dream. And you'll find all kinds of people that are willing to tell you that. But here it's not working. They can't tell the king his dream. Now the text isn't exactly clear whether um, Nebuchadnezzar remembers a dream, but he won't tell them, or he doesn't remember the dream, and he can't tell them. But this is what we need to know. I want you to know how limited, how limited he is in, in all the resources, academic, occultic. They can't help him. Which in turn should, should help us as New Covenant Christians especially. Help us to know we should keep away from anyone or anything which would tell us, hey, I can tell you what your dream means. Yeah, just tell me what it is and I can interpret it for you. I mean, why would any Christian frame some portion of their life on a nighttime dream when we have the sun, the son of God, the living word? Why would that happen? What does darkness have to do with light? And let me just say a couple of things. It's not unusual for people to say, I had a dream, I had a dream, and it's from God, and they'd be wrong. Jeremiah 23. I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusion of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget me. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what, for what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord. It's not... Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Yeah. So let's say, let's say you want to know everything. You want to know everything? I think I can help you. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know, you find in Christ. Why is that the truth? Chapter 1, verse 10 of Colossians. He is the head over every power and every authority. Verse 16 of Colossians 1. All things have been created by him and all things are created for him. He is before all things and he holds everything together. Dreams are old news for the new covenant Christian. That's the first thing. Second thing. Is it not true that for most of us, Most of us, all of our instincts would be bending towards thinking that, okay, if God is going to give a divine revelation in this dream, and that's what's happening here. It is a divine revelation from God about the future. Okay, if if God's going to do that, then it would seem to me that he would reveal his glorious person through, through a pretty holy person. I mean, isn't that the way we typically think? Abraham had dreams, Joseph had dreams, Samuel, but, but, but Nebuchadnezzar, really? Really? Think of it this way. Let's say the leader of North Korea, King Kim Jong-un. Let's say that if even a speck of what comes to us in the West about um, him is true. 
then, then surely that young man is driven by some deep, deep darkness. But even there, God could easily choose this man as his vessel to reveal his glorious purpose, just like King Nebuchadnezzar. So we need not think that God only works through holy people. And holy people are the ones that God uses. Apparently not. God will establish his purposes in the world by the means that he chooses. And if he wants to use a wicked old king, no matter where they are, he's going to do it if he chooses to. And then to God be the glory. Don't let that unsettle you. This is truth. This is biblical truth. God takes a wicked Babylon to punish his own people. Third thing. Nebuchadnezzar was beginning to come to grips with the limits of his ability in his life. And he doesn't like it at all. Every one of his resources. Think. The whole world at his table. The things which used to give him so much success. He's calling on and they cannot help him here. Again, literally the whole world, every created thing is at his disposal. And now he can't fight his way out of this. He can't plan his way out of this. He can't negotiate his way out of this. He cannot even threaten his way out of this. He is in a very difficult position for powerful people to be in. He's powerless. And God in his dreams is behind it all. And clearly Nebuchadnezzar's goals, his heart was set on things that were fleeting. He lived exclusively for the world. That's why he called out to the world for help. And because he was living just for the now, every one of his hopes, every one of his dreams, in the dream, in some way, he's deceived that's going to come to nothing. It's going to all decay. And the dream, in some way, is showing this to him. And as you think about Nebuchadnezzar and his reaction to this, we could say with some degree of certainty, this is why we get so angry, right? Why do I get so angry? It has an answer. Why am I so afraid all the time? That has an answer. Why am I so restless and dissatisfied? That has an answer. Because we are beginning to discover that we are not in control, ultimately, are we? We're not. God made humanity for himself. And the human heart says, Augustine, it is restless, agitated, edgy. The human heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're part of the have or have nots. It doesn't matter if you're bright or you're not so bright. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're posting on social media about how terrific your life is. It doesn't matter. The cares of this world, Mark 4, 19, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, it will destroy our peace. Now bear with me, please. This is why I often say to you, if you are only interested in Christianity for self-improvement, for family management, for personal peace, or wanting God to fix stuff, you will be constantly disappointed with God. And as long as one One's thinking is only earthbound. They will never be delivered from these insecurities, no matter how much they have. So then anger and, and frustration and anxiety, it will haunt us. 
You see, Nebuchadnezzar, with his seemingly limitless resources, he is dominating in the world, but he cannot get the one thing that he wants. He wants peace. And a God-given dream is taking it away from him. God is doing this because, because what Nebuchadnezzar wants, listen carefully, wants peace, that's only half the equation. I mean, everybody wants peace. However, there can be no lasting peace in ourselves or with others until there's peace with God. He has no peace within himself because he has no peace with God. And peace with God always begins with what? I'm almost embarrassed. I bet you know the answer. Peace with God always begins with repentance to God. Isn't that what the Bible says? Ephesians 2, man as man, he's at war with God. He's under God's wrath on account of our rebellion and our sin. And there is no peace for the wicked. And you will call what I said in the beginning of these these next three chapters, how God is working out his purposes. And he's going to save a self-centered pagan rebel calling on the dark powers of hell, evil king. Hmm. And what's true for Nebuchadnezzar is actually true for every one of us here, no matter what size our little empires are. Because how do we, how do we explain our outburst, our irrational behavior towards other people, even towards ourselves? How, how do we explain many of our anxieties? Is it just we're having a moment I mean, can it always really be someone else's fault? The 19th century German philosopher Nietzsche, who, who, by the way, Adolf Hitler was very fond of, he said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? We'll go a little low brain here. Janet Jackson in her song, I want to be the one in control. You see, this is why Nebuchadnezzar, his, his counselor said, verse 11, You're not God. You're not God. And they're not here. And they're not speaking. You're stuck in this, Nebuchadnezzar. And all your resources cannot get you out. So what does he do? Verse 12, he flies into rage and wants everybody, every counselor dead. Just like the Pharisees with Jesus. Jesus would confront them with truth. And instead of bowing and repenting, you find them Mashing their teeth, furious, angry, and planning out his death. Now, loved ones, do you feel, do you feel like I do your humanness here? This this is me. Okay, I want all my ducks in a row. I want my kids to be stellar. I want my job to be outstanding. I want my wife to be a babe. I want my provision well stocked. I want my life to be exactly how I want it. And then when that happens, then I'll be okay. And then I'll have peace. When peace, lasting peace, the Bible says, it's never going to come that way. It's never going to come that way. We, 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 will ne- <laughs> we may think we have everything perfect, but we won't have peace. Because the kind of peace that we need is we begin in repentance and we bow in worship 
to the triune God. Hmm. Remember last time we learned that we could compare Jesus and Daniel? Well, this time let's do this. Let's compare Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have one who will do everything necessary, which will involve the loss of his life to give his people peace with God. In Nebuchadnezzar, we have one who will do anything necessary, including calling on the dark powers of this world to give him the peace that he needs. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who will die for men and women and young people and even the likes of Nebuchadnezzar to give them peace, lasting peace, uh, grounded not in the ebb and flow of life, but in his finished work on the cross. In Nebuchadnezzar, he finds exactly the opposite. (laughs) In Nebuchadnezzar, I will use everything to get what I need. In the Lord Jesus Christ, I will give you everything. I will give you everything in order that you can receive what you do not deserve. This whole chapter beginning in verse 4 and all the way to chapter 7, it's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the world at that time. In essence, it would be something like English or Chinese now. Ask yourself the question, why did Daniel begin to write in the language of the world? Could it be this, that the God who wants to save this world, wants the whole world to know that no one, no one is out of his reach, not even a pagan, evil king like Nebuchadnezzar. Loved ones, you have some rebels in your life, sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, or you might be here and you're outside of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe you're viciously, or they are viciously outside of Jesus Christ, and you're like, right now, there's no way. There's no way that they'll ever become a Christian. And then you might say something like this. It's going to take an act of God for them to be converted. Good. Good. Now you're thinking. Now you're thinking. Stand back. Stand back and see the salvation of your God. Although the road be rough and steep, this is Jesus. (laughs) I go to the desert to find my sheep. And, and there is God in the middle of a wicked old kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom. And he's doing what he does best, saving people. This is our God. May we give him glory. Let's pray together as we sing and prepare to take communion this morning. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you that we don't have to have any speculation or idle notion about who you are and what you want. You have spoken finally and savingly in your son. And you, Father, have spoken clearly in your word. 
May you have mercy on us now. And may we give you the glory do your name as you turn us and those we know and love to see your salvation, to embrace, enjoy it, to repent and turn to Christ. Amen.